Welcome to Igris Moshe A to Z. I'm Rabbi Dov Linzer, Rosh HaYeshiva and President of Yeshivat Chovevei Torah Rabbinical School. We now resume with the letter K for Kashrut, um, and last time we had seen Rav Moshe's Chuvot relating to gelatin. In this episode, we're going to look at a number of Chuvot that Rav Moshe wrote on the issue of Chal of Yisrael. Now, I think most of us in the modern Orthodox world uh, think of Chal of Yisrael as a type of astringency um, or a minhug that's adopted by the more Haredi world. Um, but actually, from the perspective of the Gemara, Chal of Yisrael is the default, and the real question is, how is it that we buy milk that uh, is not under the supervision of a Jew? So what is the story with Chal of Yisrael? What is this exactly? The Gemara in Avodah Zarah on Lamed Hamad Bet in the Mishnah says that among the things that we are not allowed to buy from non-Jews is, in, is milk that was milked by a non-Jew. However, the Mishnah continues in Lamed Bet and says that if it was milked by a non-Jew and a Jew was observing it, was supervising, um, then the milk um, may be used. Now, what is the concern? The concern the Gemara makes clear is that maybe some other milks were mixed up with it, non-kosher milk, for example, camel milk. Um, and the Gemara, because of this concern, it's important that there be a Jew supervising. And the Gemara has a whole discussion about um, what would be the case if the Jew, when he was sitting, couldn't see, but when he would stand up, he would be able to see the milking. And the Gemara says that that is sufficient because that creates enough of a context that the non-Jew is afraid to mix up non-kosher milk. In its discussion, the Gemara also says, if there is no davar uh, tamei, no non-kosher animal um, in the flock, you know, amongst the animals in the farm, then it is obvious. Um, and an important question comes up, what is obvious? Is it obvious that it's not a problem at all and you can have milk of non-Jews as long as there are no non-kosher animals on the farm? Or is it obvious that the Jew does not have to directly see, uh, but it would suffice that he would be able to see when he's standing up? So this is, of course, a critical, critical question because the issue is, does this requirement of milk supervised by a Jew, chal of Yisrael, either milked by a Jew or supervised by a Jew, is this a type of of a uh, categorical takana, and at the end of the day, it does not matter what the uh, reason behind it was. Once you have the takana, once you have this rabbinic uh, enactment on the books, then uh, even if the reason is no longer applicable, the requirement remains that you must uh, um, have a Jew either do the milking or supervise the milking. Chal of Yisrael is always required. Or do we say that at the end of the day, this wasn't a formal categorical type of a takana? It was more a statement of the rabbis that because of this concern, you know, it needs supervision. The same way we have kosher supervision for a lot of things that we have a concern that non-kosher things might be mixed up or part of the uh, production process. But when those concerns are not present, then of course you can drink the milk, uh, even if it is not supervised by a Jew. So this is the core question at hand. And obviously, if we came down on the second side, uh, there would be no need for Rav Moshe to write a tshuva about it, because nowadays the likelihood that uh, farmers would mix up anything other than cow's milk into our milk would be pretty much non-existence. A, I don't even think that there are any animals that uh, give milk that are on dairy farms, and B, there would seem to be no good motivation for them to do so, um, and one has to assume that other types of milk, uh, camel's milk, pig's milk, and so on, would only be more expensive than cow's milk. So that would be the logical conclusion. However, it's not easy to jump there, because if one looks at the Ramah in Shulchan Aruch, this is in Yerdea 115.1, the Ramah says 
the following. He says, If you have a non-Jewish servant or a slave who is milking your animal on your farm, um, in your barn, as long as there's not a house of a non-Jew between you and the barn, um, your house and the barn, and there's no concern that there might be a non-kosher animal around, then they can milk and you don't have to supervise. So this sounds, if we were to just focus on that phrase that there is um, no non-kosher animal around, that as long as there's not an active concern of non-kosher milk, it's not a problem, it doesn't need Jewish supervision. However, the Ramad does specifically talk about it's your farm, your servant, uh, there's no non-Jewish house in between, and one um, can easily understand that Ramah is really saying that in this context, it's called Chal of Yisrael because it's all under your control, your ownership, and in the end of the day, this is your servant who is doing the milking. Um, and when one continues in the Ramah, it actually makes it sound that the simple absence of a concern of uh, non-kosher milk uh, would not suffice. So, for example, he says that if a non-Jewish house was in the way, even if there was no non-kosher animals around, it would be a problem. Or, he says, if a uh, non-Jew did the beginning of the milking and then a Jew came in the middle, given that there's no real concern nowadays for non-kosher animals, that's also considered Chal of Yisrael and that's also okay. So it seems that the Ramah is doing this balancing act. Because there's no active concern for non-kosher animals, um, we can go a little bit lighter on the definition of what's considered Chal of Yisrael. But it still has to be Chal of Yisrael. A Jew has to have supervised at least part of the milking. It has to be a Jewish servant or slave on a Jew's farm that's doing the milking. But we still need it to be formally categorized as Chal of Yisrael. And if that's correct, then that's going to be a problem how we can buy milk in the supermarket that's not Chal of Yisrael. Because even if we argue that there is no basis to be concerned for non-kosher milk, where is the Jewish involvement or supervision that allows us to uh, formally call this Chal of Yisrael. So let's see what Rav Moshe says about this. There are a number of kuvot that Rav Moshe writes on the Chal of Yisrael issue, but the core one is in Yerdea 147, and this is from 1954. And here's what he writes. Milk that is milked, um, that comes from these large conglomerates and companies, um, can you go ahead and buy that milk in the supermarket? Not buying milk off of a farm and a non-Jewish farmer or even a Jewish farmer. What if he's not Shomer Shabbos? Uh, we'll get to that. Rav Moshe has a chuva on that topic. But here we're talking about a large industry, the dairy industry, and buying your normal sort of uh, um, milk in the cartons in the supermarket. What is the story? So Rav Moshe writes as following. He says, there is, first of all, not Jewish supervision, but supervision of the government. Um, the government makes sure um, and checks up, uh, you know, the FDA, um, that uh, everything is going according to regulation. And were they to mix up the milk of a non-kosher animal, uh, then they would be uh, punished. They'd be fined. They could even close down the whole business. So there's no incentive, and there's a positive disincentive for mixing in non-kosher milk. Now, fine, but we've already said, the Ramah already says that that's not sufficient. Um, even if there's no concern of non-kosher animals, you still need some way of framing it as Chal of Yisrael. So let's see what Rav Moshe says. There are certainly afraid of mixing up non-kosher milk. 
And therefore, yesh tam gadol af you can be lenient even without going like the prichadash. The prichadash is the one that says it's all about the presence of uh, the concern, and when the concern isn't there, there's no problem. And Rav Moshe says, even bracketing that, that's not our general approach. We generally take a more formalistic approach. Nevertheless, here it's okay. Why? Where is the Chol of Yisrael element? Mishum da'ikr, the idea brura hi mamash. And here is Rav Moshe's Chiddush. If you absolutely know something, it is like you saw it. So we normally say seeing is believing. Rav Moshe is saying believing or knowing something is seeing. It's like you actually saw it. This is a principle in halacha called Anan Sahadi. We can testify to the fact of something that is so obvious and so well known. And this actually, says Rav Moshe, does not just mean that we can accept it as fact. It means it's as if we have actually observed it. And he's going to go on to demonstrate that, and we'll read some of the proofs in a minute. But what he is basically saying is that this actually is Chal of Yisrael. It is Chal of Yisrael. It is supervised by a Jew. Who's the Jew that's supervising it? All of us, the whole Jewish community, because we know it is so obvious that this was no non-kosher milk was mixed in. It is as if we have all observed it being milked, and therefore it is Chal of Yisrael. So it's known, for example, that when somebody would... uh, said to Rav Moshe about Rav Moshe, I understand that you're lenient and you allow chalavakum, you know, milk of non-Jews. And he said, chas v'shalom, I don't allow chalavakum. It's all chal of Yisrael. It's not allowing it if it's in the category of chalavakum. What he's doing is the category still exists. Chalavakum, milk of a non-Jew is still not is still forbidden. This is just milk of a Jew. Uh, Rav Moshe has, does this in other places as well. A uh, famous tshuva about saving the life of a non-Jew on Shabbos, which the simple reading of the Gemara is that a person would not biblically violate Shabbos in order to do it. Rav Moshe, rather than saying we do save the lives of non-Jews on Shabbos, says anytime the life of a non-Jew is at stake, then ultimately because of concerns of reprisals and anti-Semitism, the life of a Jew is at stake. So it's always pikuach nefesh of a Jew. So here too, it's always being milked by a Jewish supervision because it is so patently obvious, it's like we are seeing it. And that's why when people do refer to this, they're careful to say, call it, if not chal of Yisrael, call it chal of stam. Milk that is not actively Jewish supervised, but we're not calling it non-Jewish milk. Um, and that is the type of milk that Rav Moshe says because of the reality of the companies and the fear of being fined and so on, that it is so obvious it's like it's being observed by a Jew. Let's take a look and see what type of proofs he gives for this idea that knowing something is like you have seen it. And here's what he says. First of all, we can accept this for evidence and testimony as if it's testimony in a monetary case. Now, that doesn't exactly prove it because monetary issues, evidence might suffice without direct testimony. But then he goes on. That it might constitute as if if there's obvious that somebody immersed in a mikvah for conversion um, and it's well known based on context, that might count like the Bastin observed it and makes it a good immersion for the sake of conversion. And that really is a formal requirement that a Bastin be present. It's not just that there be knowledge of it, and the knowledge turns it into as if 
the basin is present. This is at least a position of Tosfos. Uh, it's debated, but at least it's a position of Tosfos. And Rav Moshe says the phrase anansadi, we testify to the fact, does not just mean that something is taken as fact. It literally means that it's considered as if we have seen it. And now he gives another example where it's clear you have a formal requirement of testimony and this satisfies. The So for example, if a marriage takes place without there being witnesses present, um, then it is not legally binding. So the need for witnesses is called edekiyum. Their presence makes the act legally binding. So it's clearly an, a formal requirement of the presence of witnesses, not just the idea that there is absolute knowledge that it took place. A video would not suffice, for example. And that is the requirement, witnesses. But nevertheless, says Rav Moshe, we know that in some circumstances, if they see a man and woman go into a you know motel together and it's a type of, a, an, uh, the context is clear, then it is as if they have seen the act of intercourse, which would turn this into a bias kidushin, an intercourse which would effect marriage. Um, and it's not just a stringency, says Rav Moshe. She is fully considered a married woman because it is as if they have seen the intercourse, even though they only saw them go into the motel together. Now, by the way, I should say parenthetically, this does not turn every act of intercourse outside of marriage into bs kiddushin, even if other people are aware of it. This is specifically in a context in which it's understood that it's a marriage, husband and wife type of context. We don't have to get into the specifics in the Gemara. Now Rav Moshe goes on, Rav Moshe says we can even work in some assumptions to make something as if we have seen something. Um, so Rav Moshe then goes on to discuss a case in the Gemara, a very problematic case from our sensibilities nowadays about a man who was married to a minor and once she becomes an adult and the marriage was not halachically binding because the father was dead um, and once she becomes an adult and they keep on living together uh, then it is as if um, not as if we we say that a marriage has taken place. Where has the marriage taken place? Because we assume they're continuing, they're living together, they're continuing to have intercourse. So it's as if we're testifying to an act of intercourse in the context of marriage, which makes it a act that affects marriage. But it also he also has to intend for this to make marriage, not just think that it's they've already been married. So we also assume that he knows that the earlier marriage was not legally binding, and therefore there's an intention on his part, on her part, that this should be an act of marriage. Um, and number three, the assumption that uh, he does not want to continue living with her in a outside of a marital context, that he desires marriage. So those are three assumptions we make, that they're having intercourse, that they're doing it without a desire that it should be outside of marriage, that they know the original marriage was not good, and that they want this to effect a halakhically binding marriage. And we make all of those assumptions and say it is like we have witnessed this act, and therefore they are legally married. So Rav Moshe says, as you see, in many areas of halacha, even when there are very, very strict requirement of witnesses in a formal type of a sense, and even when it's issues of personal status, not something like a rabbinic issue of Chal of Yisrael, we take definite knowledge even definite knowledge based on certain assumptions, but our perception of something as definite, as perception is like see- seeing, and as if we have now witnessed it and directly observed it. So one more example, and then he turns back to the case of Chal of Yisrael. 
He says, He says, sometimes it's even good enough for putting somebody to death, the death penalty, where we know that is the highest level of uh, witnessing that is needed, is to directly see somebody doing it, to warn the person. Certainly, evidence is not sufficient. You need direct witnessing of something in order to put somebody to death. Now, how would you ever do that in a case of one of the forbidden sexual relations? I mean, are you actually seeing the act of intercourse? Like, you, you might see them in bed together and everything looks like they're having intercourse, but are you actually seeing the genitalia? And the answer is you don't have to. As long as it looks like like anybody would look like in the middle of an act of intercourse, you assume that they're having intercourse even without seeing it uh, close up. And Rav Moshe says, once again, we are using our knowledge to define something as an act of testimony, um, as an act of seeing. Now, some of these cases could be contested because in some of the cases he gives, we actually are seeing something and we're just using our knowledge to fill in the blanks. Like this case, you see two people in bed and, you know, it it totally looks like they're having intercourse um, and you can fill in the blanks of what you're not seeing uh, black and white. Similarly, in the case of when people are living together and we translate that as, uh, as if there's witnesses to the fact that they're doing an act of Kiddushin, as if we are seeing and we know that they're having intercourse, at least we are seeing them living together. So it's a bigger filling in of gaps, but there's some seeing that's taking place and we're just uh, extrapolating, interpolating, and so on, and adding to the seeing that already exists. Uh, it's definitely a bigger chiddush when there's no observation at all to say it's as if we saw something. Uh, the evidence from the basin of conversion um, was, was good proof, but that was a position of Tosos. That's not universally accepted. So some of these cases, you can definitely challenge how good of an evidence they are, but let's also remember that we're only trying to satisfy a rabbinic uh, enactment where the reason no longer exists, and but there is still the formalistic requirement to satisfy um, those formal parameters. So certainly for something like this, it seems that his argument that it's as if we are seeing it um, is a you know very strong argument. And in general, post-skim, when you're left just with the formal aspects of the enactment and not the reason, tend to be more flexible in terms of what's considered to satisfy uh, those formal requirements. So let's see now where he says that. So we can allow this when, if we have an absolute knowledge. It's like we're seeing it. So we know that there'll be fines and if they were to mix it up and they would have to shut down the company. They would lose thousands of dollars. And they have government supervision. That is like we definitely know it. And therefore it is formally excluded. It is satisfies the requirement of a Jew observing it. This would satisfy anybody's requirements of Chalif Yisrael. This is Jewish supervision. One who wants to be lenient. There's a good basis to do this. And he is permitted to rely on this position. The majority of Torah observant Jews do this. Now remember, Torah observant might mean more modern Orthodox. But then he says, Many rabbis, and he says the majority of all 
those who shomri Torah. So it's widespread that uh, people are not makbid on Chal of Yisrael. There are some who are, but this is a very solid basis to not have to worry about Chal of Yisrael and to buy milk in the supermarket. The chas v'shalom lomar she'osim shalokidin. God forbid we should say so many Jews are acting improperly. Nevertheless, Roy Now this is very interesting, right? Because you want to give a very strong sense of you don't have to have any compunctions of relying on this. You can go to the supermarket, buy normal milk, but do you want to totally undermine the value of those that actually are makhpid on this? Um, how do you sort of do both? So Rav Moshe says, look, people who want to really adopt stringencies upon themselves, balei nefesh, reach a higher level of observance, then it would be appropriate to adopt this. It's not like being religiously arrogant. That's my personal practice. But he's now, he's framing it as a chumrah for people that want to reach a higher level of observance. So it's quite fascinating. What I started by saying that, in, you know, the general perception is Chal of Yisrael is a chumrah, but according to the Gemara, Chal of Yisrael is really the halacha. The question is, how do we buy milk from the supermarket? After Rav Moshe's psaq, Rav Moshe is really aligning himself with that perception that's widespread in the community. Milk from the supermarket is fine. Chal of Yisrael in the sense of an actual Jew being present and supervising as opposed to Rav Moshe's version of us knowing and it be like supervising but that type of real Chal of Yisrael that now is a Chumrah for people who want to be Machmir. If you want to be lenient, it's, you're not adopting a lenient position, you are adopting the Halachic position. The Halacha is that this is totally fine. And God forbid you should think that somebody who does not Machmir on Chal of Yisrael um, is not uh, super from about and and punctilious about halachic observance. So this in this way, Rav Moshe basically says everything is chal of Yisrael, um, the same way everything is pikuach nefesh of a Jew, everything is chal of Yisrael, and therefore it is okay. And what classically was understood as chal of Yisrael is now a chumrah. Now he ends this tshuva with discussing what if this is your practice, this chumrah is your practice, and now maybe you've read my tshuva and you want to give it up. You want to go to just having milk from the supermarket. Are you allowed to do it? So this is really fascinating because we've looked at this before, uh, the question of how Rav Moshe approaches minhagim and when minhagim become binding and when are you sort of, do you remain bound by them? And let's see what he says here. If that's been your practice and now you've done it three times, does it become a binding minhag? So here Rav Moshe says something that he has said elsewhere, it's general halacha, but a lot of people aren't aware of it, which is, if you are consciously doing something as a chumrah, then it becomes a binding minhag. Then you did it three times, you've accepted on yourself an additional practice that's not halachically required of you, and now if you would want to get out of it, you would need hataros nidarim. Um, and then questions, what if it was the practice of your place, of your parents, and so on. But if you followed it because you thought it was the halacha, and now you're finding out that it's not the halacha, then you don't need hataras nedarim. Then you never were practicing it as a chumrah and as a personal additional obligation. You were just practicing it because you believe that was the halacha, and now you have come to a different conclusion. Or you were doing it because you were playing it safe. And you thought that people who were lenient maybe really weren't being so careful. And now you realize 
that actually, given Rav Moshe's psak, it really isn't required as a matter of halach at all, then then it's not binding as a minhag. You don't need to do hatars nidaim. You can just drop this practice. So in the end of his tshuva, in addition to turning now active chal of Yisrael, meaning a Jew present, what traditionally has always been chal of Yisrael, into a chumrah, because now everything is chal of Yisrael. Um, so turning that from a din into a chumrah, he also now has opened up the door and said that if you've been doing this and you don't want to do this anymore and you were doing it because you thought it was the halacha, be my guest, stop doing it. So really giving a very strong basis that as a matter of halacha, not as a leniency, you don't need chal of Yisrael, um, but at le- wanting to continue to acknowledge at least the value to some degree of those who had that practice and saying that he himself had that practice. Now, how machmir and makbid on himself was he actually? I've, act- I've heard different uh, stories. I heard one story that Rav Moshe once was drinking some coffee um, and he assumed that the milk in it was Chol of Yisrael and somebody told him it wasn't and he made himself throw up in order that he didn't have to uh, swallow or uh, even, I guess, keep in his stomach the milk that he already drank. Uh, that's pretty extreme. Uh, but I heard other stories that were the exact opposite, that Rav Moshe was happy to have regular uh, milk from the supermarket if Chol of Yisrael wasn't available. If Chol of Yisrael is available, fine, but if that's all you had, he the milk from the supermarkets, he'd be happy to take that. I also have heard that his uh, children, both are both uh, sons are uh, major rabbanim, uh, that they themselves are not makbid at all on Chol of Yisrael and regularly buy milk from the supermarket. Again, I don't know the veracity of any of these stories. Uh, Rav Moshe in Two Later Two Vote does deal with this question of the appropriateness of the Chumrah and uh, tries to give, again, weight and backing for those who are committed to this Chumrah. So let's look at that uh, briefly. Um, in Yeridea, uh, 235 from 1970, he says as following. Uh, and he says, There's no prohibition of non-Jewish milk. People who want to adopt a higher religious standard, they, it's fit for them to be strict. Therefore, if you have a yeshiva katana, you should give this to your students. You should specifically buy Chol of Yisrael. Even though it's a little bit more expensive. Rav Moshe says, I can do the math. You multiply it by each student and over the course of the year, I understand we're talking about a lot of money. Um, and never, and yeshivas don't have a, the, that he was dealing with are a very tight budget. So really, you would think, given that, and given that he says it's just a chumrah, so let's just buy the normal milk. Why are you pushing and encouraging the yeshivot to buy Chal of Yisrael. So he says as follows, He says, because this is chinuch. Chinuch is that we should be striving for higher levels of observance. And because this was, there's a tiny concern of Yisrael. Now that's different than Rav Moshe said before, where he said, it's completely okay. But meaning you needed a tshuva of Rav Moshe to allow it, and it's so that starts with something a little problematic, we should be adopting higher levels of observance, and that's a very important educational message, and that's why you should be doing it, not because it's really required on its own terms. 
Um, this will teach them what it means to be super scrupulous about, you know, um, prohibitions and about halacha and always to add extra ways to be um, even, you know, more careful. And at the end of the day, and we've seen this on the our discussions of education, you know, the, go- the primary focus should be on developing a religious personality, not just on the knowledge that you're sticking in their heads. And this, says Rav Moshe, is a core part of that lesson. When it comes to fundamental education, we should never compromise. Aval, but then he ends by saying, If you don't have really available Chalav Yisrael where you live. So he says, In that case, So in that case, Obviously, you know, then there is no need to be strict. It would cause great, great hardship. So here, quite fascinating. It seems not for its own purpose, but for almost the symbolic message and the educational religious message. Now, that is why he is encouraging these vote to be strict. Now, of course, we could uh, agree with his general approach about training people um, and religious education, but ask if this is particularly the area to be emphasizing, because, you know, things like Chal of Yisrael and Chadash and so on um, are things that also create separate communities, separate from the broader uh, observant Jewish community. Um, and, you know, there's always a cost with certain chumras. Uh, nevertheless, one could ask whether our community is as scrupulous about halacha and is as concerned about maybe, God forbid, transgressing even a rabbinic prohibition. Um, so worth really thinking about in terms of the sort of symbolic power in adopting um, this chumrah. For those that are interested in seeing another tshuva along these lines, you can look at Yerdea 4, number 5, which is the posthumous volume, where he uh, writes uh, about the importance of Chal of Yisrael to give strength to those that are have a company of producing milk that is Chal of Yisrael, and therefore he particularly emphasizes why this is of value and the more that they should be doing it, because then it'll make it af- more affordable the more people are invested in this industry. And there he says that he only, was only lenient to allow uh, Chal of Stam because because of Bishat Hadchak at times of, of real need. Um, but again, it did not sound that way at all from his original Chuva. One or two final points before we wrap this up. Um, Rav Moshe, when he came out with his tshuva, he, uh, he got pushback. And often when his tshuva is based on certain positions relating to facts, uh, it opens you to pushback when somebody shows that the facts are otherwise. So in Yordeo 148 from 1954, uh, he responds to somebody who says, look, it's not really a big fine. He says, The fine would only be $25 to $100. And this was a time when you could, uh, maybe even now, I don't know, pay off the inspectors. So it's not such a big consequence. So how can you really say this makes it as if we are definitely 100% sure that it was not mixed up any trafe milk and it's like we saw it? So Rav Moshe says, Rav Moshe says, I don't care that it's not a big fine. It doesn't matter. There's no incentive for them to mix up non-kosher milk. The Kivan he says, you know, it's going to be a lot of effort because you're breaking the law. Even if there's not a fine, you have to get all your workers to be quiet about it. And then he says, and you have to worry about the about what's going to happen if they find out it's not just 
an issue of a fine, but they could take away your license. Um, and therefore, there are all of these concerns, even if the fine isn't big. And there is no profit that he would gain. It's so much counter his interests to be mixing up non-kosher milk. Um, and if there's no profit, we're not concerned of mixing up non-kosher products. And certainly it's type of a you know, company worth thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. And therefore, he concludes, so says Rav Moshe, look, we are not going to make up on our own ways of saying, oh, because of these circumstances, we can assume that there's no non-kosher milk mixed up. But the Gemara does tell us what are types of contexts where we don't have to be concerned that non-kosher things will be mixed into, mixed into, whether it's milk or other types of products. One is when there's absolutely no profit, and the other is when there's a fear of the consequences. And Rav Moshe says we have both here, so since both of those reasons are satisfied, we can go ahead and drink the milk. Now, it's interesting that he shifts now. He doesn't talk anymore about that it's like we've seen it. We know such 100% it's like we've seen it. He says, no, it satisfies the Chol of Yisrael requirement because having a Jew there creates a reality of being fear, of him being afraid, the non-Jew, and about it not being worth his, his you know, not being worth it for him financially. And we have now created that same reality through the government and the fines and all of the possible consequences. So it's uh, the, the facts that were presented to Rav Moshe have forced him, if you read closely, to move off of the framing that it's so definite that it's like a Jew saw it, to saying this creates the same reality of mirtat, of being afraid and not having profit, which it's not just the absence of, non- of non-kosher animals, but the same positive presence of these things that prevent it f- non-kosher milk from being mixed in that mean that the takana is being satisfied, the requirements are being satisfied. The last tshuva we'll reference is right after this. These are all right in a row in Yerdea number 1. So here it's Yerdea 149, also from 1954. And he had to deal with another challenge, which was not just um, how much of the fine and how afraid are they and how definite is it, but the fact that these large companies often collect from local farmers the milk. And from those local farmers, you don't have those same realities about a concern of a fine and the financial consequences. That's just local farmers, which we've always said, the halach has always said, has a problem of Chal of Yisrael unless there is a Jew supervising. And in order to answer this question, Rav Moshe does a, a, a really deep dive into the sugya of Chal of Yisrael, and he comes up with the following conclusion, which is quite fascinating. He says, the im kein eno klumasha companies lokrim gam chalav meha farmers um, it doesn't matter that they're taking it from farmers who are not so afraid, and there would be a problem of Chal of Yisrael or Chal of Akum by them. And the Rav Moshe deals a little with the issue about Bito, but even bracketing that. So Rav Moshe takes a real formalist approach here, and we're not reading through the Tshuva to show how he builds it up. But he says, 
it only becomes Chal of Akum once it comes into Jewish ownership. It's quite a fascinating idea. That's when it becomes Chal of Akum. But meaning, if it's all just milk that non-Jews, you know, in the non-Jewish world, Halacha doesn't relate to it yet. Halacha only relates to it when we're in the process of taking possession of it. So therefore, since the companies took from the farmers, it didn't yet have a status of Chal of Akum. Even if a Jew had taken from the farmer, it would have had that status. But because the non-Jewish companies took, it didn't yet have the status. The Jew then comes and he buys it in the supermarket. He gets the milk from the companies. And since the companies is a context where there's no concern of Chal of Akum, then it's the company's ownership and relationship to the milk that defines the nature of the milk, because that is where the Jew is interfacing with them, is at that level, and therefore their ownership is one that uh, would not form, would not define it as Chal of Akum, but as Chal of Stam, or even Chal of Yisrael. So these two vote really show us a number of really of important uh, features of Rav Moshe. First of all, the fact that um, you have a wide section of the uh, observing community that doesn't keep it, uh, pushes him to defend this practice and not even say it's a leniency, but actually say it's the Iker Halacha, um, and to turn what had seemed to be the Iker Halacha, the requirement of Chal of Yisrael, into a Chumrah. So his ability to be creative to solve this problem because starting from the position of the reality about how widespread this practice was. And then how his creativity allows him to satisfy and works with certain formal definitions, saying it really is a type of a Chal of Yisrael, it's like we saw it, um, or the form definition that it doesn't even get its status until we are buying it from the non-Jews, and that solves the problem of your more local farmers because it's defined in the context of the company. When pushed on some of this, he moved a little bit away um, and said that you just have the reality of Mirtad, of being afraid, and that even that itself is, a, is enough. But again, you see his creativity and, make, and how that creativity uh, allows him to say that formal definitions um, are being satisfied. Uh, and the other thing that you see is even when he he's doing this, his desire to uphold and value uh, the practice um, that is being uh, done in the more Haredi communities uh, of Chal of Yisrael and his value in terms of Chinuch and what type of religious personality uh, we should be developing. And I think it's very rare to find a posseg that wants to embrace both worlds um, and is not saying that all the non-Orthodox should be striving to do Chal of Yisrael, not trying to say that those that do Chal of Yisrael should give it up. It's a silly practice and it just separates them from the larger Orthodox community, really valuing both and um, bolstering both. Um, and that's one of the true uniquenesses of Rav Moshe, uh, beyond his specific creativity in Psak that allow him to reach this conclusion.